Welcome to Pod of the Gaps, the podcast where we bridge the spaces between the church and the culture. I'm your host, Andy Bannister, and I'm joined by my insightful co-host, Aaron Edwards. In today's episode, we are going to dive into the intriguing realm of artificial intelligence, AI, and examine how we can engage with that from a theological perspective. Because as technology advances at an unprecedented rate, AI presents both remarkable opportunities and complex ethical dilemmas. How does our faith intersect with this rapidly evolving landscape? Together, Aaron and I are going to explore the gaps that exist between the church and the culture regarding AI as we try to understand its impact on spirituality, ethics, and the human experience. So join us on this thought-provoking journey (laughs) as we engage in deep conversations, (laughs) thoughtfully analyze the challenges posed by AI, and discover fresh perspectives on integrating theology with cutting-edge technology, get ready to bridge the gaps and explore the theological implications of artificial intelligence on this episode of Pod of the Gaps. Wow, let's just... Uh, we're that was you about quite the, the intro. Aren't, aren't you impressed by that intro? I just That's think, Andy, I, I think you just, you were on a, a roll. I think it was the unction of the spirit there. That's just the most clear, the most insightful introduction I think we've ever done on Pod of the Gaps. Is there it's certainly the longest introduction. Shall I... Do I need to let you and the listeners into a really naughty secret? There couldn't be possibly a naughty there secret. There is a naughty though. little there's a naughty little secret. Um not that one about uh, about those those really liberal books that you keep in the basement. Um <laughs> no, my naughty little secret is is I Aaron, I didn't write that intro. I didn't <gasps> write that intro. The listeners will be shocked. They will be shocked. They will assume we do all of our own work. That was written appropriately for an episode on AI, artificial intelligence. That was written by ChatGPT, this uh, this artificial mm-hmm. intelligence chatbot that everyone has been talking about for the past few months. I literally said to it, I typed into it, please write me a 100-word introduction to a podcast called Pod of the Gaps. I gave it my name and your name and uh, and stuff, and, and, that, and it wrote that, so... Not bad, so that's eh? Good. Yeah, that's good. And, and yeah, and I was named insightful. So the AI world thinks that I'm insightful. What did it say? Yeah, I'm not sure. Computer, exactly. It, it, I noticed it didn't say anything about me. It didn't say, I'm yeah. Andy Bannister. You're, uh, you're, you know, remarkably yeah. rugged and attractive. Uh, <laughs> the, the rugged, I'm the rugged Andy Bannister, and we have the disgraced lecturer, Aaron Edwards. In the, uh, Anything I, is. I don't know what it does. Does it look up? Does it look at people, people's profiles up? Yeah, it's got like the entire internet scraped when they built chat GPT. The only thing I would say is the word insightful. Is that one of those vaguely British words that can yes. mean different things so you know you know how it is if someone comes to you and presents a really weird idea you might say <laughs> yes that's interesting or if a student you know writes that's you an right. essay where they try to argue yeah. that you know the apostle paul was really into macrame and juggling as a hobby and do some weird exegesis of ephesians to, dem- to demonstrate this and you might say well that's um it's an insightful piece of work well, it depends where you yeah. place the emphasis that's can also true, be yeah. the, badass crazy. Yeah, I mean, interesting is usually what we go for for that, isn't it? But that's I think insight. Yeah, you could say insight. I have an insight into your thinking now. Thank you. Yeah, that's, as someone who's occasionally asked to endorse books, you know, I get endor- yes. asked to endorse books by people I know. That's easy. Occasionally, random people send me books, and sometimes you do read a book. I don't know if you've had this experience where you read it and you go, "It's, it's okay, but it's mm. not going to set the world on fire." So I've got mm. to look for adjectives that sound positive. But that yes. probably really are just adjectives you pick because they sound positive and insightful. <laughs> I realize that anyone who anyone listening to this who I have endorsed your book, yes, exactly. <laughs> this was a very insightful, insightful. To, um, someone told me who's uh, I, I won't name them, but they uh, they're a close relative of someone who gets gets um, a lot of endorsing done, and often this person got sent so many books oh, to yeah. endorse that they couldn't possibly read them all. But they didn't want to let the person they know down. 
So they'd have to put some generic character <laughs> commendation that, that, that didn't lie. So they're not saying, I read the book. They're just saying, this person is really good. Like this person has, you know, is a really helpful expositor or this person is a, a very trustworthy person. And that's all they can say. So you, you sort of know when you're looking at this person's commendations, they haven't read the book. It's not specific enough. They haven't given anything about the content of the book. So now if I ever see that on one of your commendations, and if I ask you to endorse my book, but you'll probably say this book will burn the burn down, you know, set, set the world on fire, but not in a good way. I, uh, I just actually asked ChatGPT to give me a 50-word generic book endorsement. So you can use this next time, oh, Aaron. This book is an absolute gem. With uh, insightful perspectives and thought-provoking ideas, it takes readers on an unforgettable journey. The author's, author's mastery of language and deep understanding of their subject make this book a must-read for anyone seeking inspirational knowledge. That's excellent. That's really good. Actually, that reminds me of a... I had... I think this must have been a a, a chat GPT type uh, type thing. I got a comment on my... You know when you get... Um, if you have, a, you have a blog, do you? But when you have to approve um, comments or the moderate comments that come on the yes. blog. And here's one that can lose. There's loads of spam always um, from random people, but some of them try to not look like spam. So here is one of them. Greetings. Very helpful advice in this particular post. It is the little changes that make the most significant changes. Thanks for sharing. And I was like, hmm, is that a real person or not? I don't think they've read uh, the, the actual reference to anything real in the uh, in the article and then then i saw that, who is it from someone called israelnightclub.com so it's like i don't think israelnightclub.com read my Probably not. post frankly but the interesting uh, thing is there's i guess the reason we finally decided to sort of tackle this episode there has been loads of talk hasn't there about chat gpt in the culture i've lost track of how many you know newspaper articles i've read you know worrying about it is it the end of civilization as this technology gets more advanced and it's the end of humanity is it going to make everybody uh, is it going to take is it going to drive everybody out of a job you know just as machines change the face of uh you know the sort of industrial manufacturing process and put loads of people out of out of jobs yeah. when you know a machine yeah. can do the work of 100 men are we now going to see chat gpt and technologies like it do the same for the the intellectual class a, a, you know a journalist stays over our authors days over apologists yeah. and podcasters apologist days, days. Well, well, we, don't need, uh, we don't need a podcast do we like we've chat gbd no. probably do the whole episode if we ask them to do a 15 and uh, and is it eventually is it going to put you know pastors and and and, and mm. theologians out of business you'll just be able to sort of say well give me a hundred word exegesis of romans chapter one and tell me what the apostle paul meant by you know this phrase and bingo it will go ahead and do it and i suppose the ultimate question that we can explore over the next wee while does it say something about being Human, because one of the things I've noticed, I think, in the media commentary, and this is an interesting one to reflect on as Christians, right, is there, there's this sort of almost subtle assumption that chat GPT and technologies like it uh, are just doing the same as human beings do, only very, very fast. So in other words, we're just very thick versions of it. It scrapes the entire of the internet and can put together sentences. You know, we've got our lived experiences up there and our meat computers between our ears and that's all yeah. we're doing when we construct sentences. So we are actually doing the same thing. We just happen to think there's something different about it because we want to believe in human exceptionalism. So there's yeah. a seat there. Raymond Tallis is an author I quite like. He's an atheist, neuroscientist, philosopher, really quite thoughtful chap. And he makes a comment in one of his books that we have this tendency with technology to we talk it up by the metaphors that we use. You know, we talk about the camera seeing the scene or the sensor scanning the you know, the room or chat PGT, you know, thinking of an answer. But he said, the problem is, as we lift computers up, we drag ourselves down. 
because we then reduce what we're doing to just mechanized processes. Um, mm-hmm. But he would argue, and his book, his, his his book on on mind, aping mankind, neurophilia, Darwinitis, and the reduction of humanity is fascinating because he's a total materialist, but he doesn't yeah. think materialism explains mind. He doesn't know what does, but he thinks materialism doesn't work. What's uh, Darwinitis mean? Did I, like literally the like is that a positive term he's using or a negative? Term? He's using it. Uh, he's using it negatively in yeah. that we reduce everything to Darwinian mechanisms, yes, including yes. thought, um, and he thinks that doesn't work um in 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 yeah. in, a, in in um when it comes to human beings and certainly yeah. not com- coming to mind but i think one of the reasons why ai is so unsettling is if you think this is what human beings are doing if you think that all we are doing is is shuffling words and putting mm-hmm. them into sort of semi coherent sentences and uttering yeah. them mm-hmm. then chat gpt is going to look very very threatening mm-hmm. if you think there's more to being human than that then you are more likely, I think, to go, this is a very interesting technology and it's fun to play with, but mm-hmm. where's the threat? Yeah, and there's also more to the power and use of words than just relaying content. I mean, that that is a function of words, but obviously, again, it, yeah, as Christians, we believe in the word and the word who was with God and was God in the beginning and made flesh, and we believe in the, the power of the word of God that created the world by, by God created the world by his word, and so... There's so much more significance to words than just carry vehicles of content, um, which you can then replicate. So it's not just a case of minds coming together. Go, what are the best ways of using words to communicate stuff in a sharp and efficient way? It's a very modern way of uh, approaching the significance of words. They are kind of bound up with what it means to be human in terms of how we communicate. And it, yeah, the natural way in which God has kind of created us to want to do that, even if, let's say, Tower of Babel, we can think of where we um, we see God interrupting the way we may use words and and yeah you, know, you could i mean mm. I'm not, i've thought too much about it but I, I think you know just even think about it now is there a sense in which the ai uh, revolution is a kind of rebabelization because we're kind of saying there's one good way to communicate and we will if we put all of the minds together into a computer we will find the very best way of communicating using our words effectively and then you don't need to do any thinking anymore because we've done it all for you and we've done all the speaking for you mm. we've worked out the very best words we don't need different languages anymore because i don't know chat gpt will cover that for you and there's kind of all sorts of worries aren't there that come in when again the modern efficiency drive let's be efficient let's make this better can't you see all the benefits and they totally misunderstand like fundamentals of, of human communication and, and being even Yes, the word efficient that you picked there is an interesting one because um, I remember a few years ago when when Google launched a, a trial technology called Google Glass, one of these glasses that you could wear that would project a screen. You'd have a screen in front of you at all times. And I read an interview with one of the developers where he said, oh, wouldn't it be amazing? Because you talk to somebody, it can scan their face, it can pull up their profile, tell you all the kinds of things about them. And then he had this line in the interview which terrified me. He said, I, I think Google Glass will make conversation more efficient. I remember reading it thinking, I'm not sure that the job of, communic- of conversation is to be efficient. You know, if I mm. Mm. go down the pub with a friend or if I you know, have a quiet night in with my wife, I don't at the end of the evening go, now let me rate that interaction <laughs> on efficiency. How could I, that conversation have been more efficient? I mean, maybe in a limited range of conversations, if you're yes, you know, yes. having a conversation at, at work where you're trying to convey an idea to a colleague so they can do a task, yeah. maybe you could rate that. 
Maybe maybe I think you're paying for it by the hour or by the yeah, or maybe on that on that kind of line, or maybe in you know again try to be generous if you think perhaps air traffic control where you have to transmit information to the pilot to get the plane down safely, efficiency Mm. to how you get the right information across quickly and clearly. But that's not most conversation. But then what's interesting? Google Glass fell by the wayside. But then just last week in recording this, Apple have trial yes. this new technology the vision pro which is these mm. great big set of goggles that you strap mm. on you they look, mm. look like ski goggles yeah and the terrifying thing is that's going to overlay digital information into the real world but you don't mm. see the real world the goggles are not mm. transparent they they've got cameras on the outside they film the outside world they project two screens literally just in front of your eyes and overlay yeah. other information there and mm. um, the thing that that has in common for me with what you just said about ai and this is one of the areas I think we really need to be fighting for as Christians, is all of those things, abstract data from the physical. So yeah. GPT, it just plays with words, but it's not plugged into the real world. I can ask mm. ChatGPT to tell me 10 jokes or you know, recommend a recipe for you know, spaghetti bolognese. But if I asked it, could you move the mug on my desk you know, two inches to the left? It's got no concept of mugs and desks and things. It's got no physical mm. presence. Um, mm. Vision Pro, that new Apple technology, mm. it, you know, one of the critiques that I've seen in the press, I mean, lots of people going, it's amazing technology, and it is. It's very, very clever, mm. but it separates you from the real world yeah, because you're now seeing it. And the, the yeah. spookiest thing about Vision Pro is that if somebody approaches you to talk to you, um, there's, a, there's a screen on the outside of the Vision Pro device. It films your eyeballs and then projects the eyes onto the outside of the goggles. So the person wow. looking at you thinks they're looking at you, but they're not. They're looking at digital representation. And it looks all a bit scary. A bit like, it's a literally like like the more honest version of someone trying to look at their phone while they're having a conversation. Yes. It's kind of hey. like people are checking. Going, I don't think they've noticed that I've checked or something. Or well, you can see someone else is trying to do that. And actually, this is just like, I'm just all in here. I'm I'm fully pretending to, to be involved. Yeah, um, well, Sherry Turkle, who's a technologist at MIT, oh, yeah, um, yeah. written some really fascinating books, and her book, Great Reclaiming Conversation, has this yeah. paragraph. I, th- I think the word is flubbing. There's a word, there's a new word coined a few years ago flubbing. that describes that experience of what it, when, you, when you're trying to uh, text without looking at your phone. So you're trying to maintain eye contact, and you're trying to also look at the person, <laughs> try and text at the same time. And, and she yeah. talks about the fact that her students are very good at doing it. They'll you know, pretend they're looking at you, but actually they're really... They're That's interesting. And that shows that they've actually learned how to use their body in that way because, they, yeah, they know precisely where... Yes. I, I used to my students, I said... I, I, did, I did a course um, on preaching in the digitised mind and the way digitization affects all of our brains, etc. We've talked about this on the show on some previous episode, haven't we? I can't remember where. But just the, the problem of digitization in general. But I remember I, I, I still have these weird... Um, physicalized moments where I, if I'm in a conversation with someone, I've sometimes said something. I've got, oh, I, I, I want to undo that or something or something's happened. And hmm. my left uh, little finger goes like this, presses down as I'm pressing control, the thumb for alt, the other thumb for delete. And I try to do a control alt delete. Or a, Are you or telling me you, you, there's Z, some students that you've met that you, you, you basically want to control alt delete them? That's yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no. yeah, Methodism. I just want to control alt delete. Let's start from let's start from scratch, guys. End now. Or control X or control Z is actually more. Like, so like so on on Microsoft Word that, that 
for those of you who don't well, know. Well, the rumour is that eventually you'll go to the, the homepage for the Methodist Church, the uh, the Church of Scotland, those kind of mainline denominations, and you'll, it will simply give a 404 error. The, uh, the theology <laughs> that you're looking for cannot be found. Um, the, the orthodoxy here cannot be found. <laughs> yes. <right. laughs> Ortho- yes. Maybe reinstall authors. But anyway, my point being, yes. though, was that the there's an ancient heresy, as you know, right? Uh, this idea of Gnosticism. And for those not familiar with the word, that was an ancient kind of Greek idea that infected parts of the early church at, at times, which was the you know the, the material world is bad and it's dirty mm. and it's and it's yeah. inferior. What you want is the is the world of mind and spirit and ideas, yeah. uh, and you know the Greek world is infected by that. To say the church, uh, you know, didn't always engage with that with that well. Well, that I think is one of the oldest heresies going because I think yeah. it's it's now coming back in again, and it's like mm. well, okay. You know, AI just wrangling words is superior to human beings because we're we're mm. embodied, we're fleshy, and we're messy. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, ironically, as somebody who was involved in artificial intelligence stuff when it was all kicking off in the late nineteen ni- mid nineteen nineties, I nearly went to university and did a degree on artificial intelligence and linguistics. Really? That was going to be my first degree. Wow! And then God really? saved me by God very clearly <laughs> making it obvious he did not want me to do university. So Asian you'd be working for Skynet by now. You'd be I like, could be working for Skynet. But what was interesting, AI in the mid, I would say mid to late 1990s, maybe early 2000s, I would say it ran out of steam because mm-hmm. it ran into this problem that trying to create digital consciousness, the fact that human beings yes. were conscious but were physical. There's yes. a physical quality to consciousness. We're, we're embodied. Interesting mm-hmm. now... AI has gone a totally different route. It's gone on these just, you know, text chopping engines. So, hey, let's put yeah. the whole of the internet into a computer and just yeah. get it to look at billions of interactions. And then it can pretend yeah. it's a simulcra. Yeah. And that's what ChatGPT yeah. does very well. It can pretend mm. that it's giving you an answer. It hasn't. It's just looked yeah. at billions of examples of conversations and figured out, well, in yeah. response to that, I construct yes. a sentence that looks like that. Yeah. No, absolutely. And uh, actually, we could... On embodiment, that, that makes me have a thought. But we'll go. I'll, I'll say that, and then you can go to your something else that'll be illustrative of that. I think, um, in terms of jokes, um, if you can. Find oh yes, but, um, you mentioned earlier. But I was just going to say, on embodiment, I think that's right. The, the Gnostic heresy is back in in, in in the digital world in a big way. There's someone called Paul Kingsnorth who, mm. who writes a, a Substack called the Abbey of Misrule, which is a cool title. Um, and he recently became a Christian. Um, He's an author who just became a Christian unexpectedly in a kind of C.S. Lewis-y type way, uh, more on the Eastern Orthodox end, as increasingly seems to be the case for many. Um, and he's written novels uh, against this problem of, of the, the Gnostic um, heresy. And he's one of them called Alexandria, which obviously Alexandria, the Library of Alexandria, the great kind of learning, the kind of idolatry of human knowledge. And so that's the kind of motif in the book. And it's a post-apocalyptic thing where there's these basically most of the people on earth have been convinced to elevate into a kind of mind consciousness rather and lose their bodies because the bodies becomes dirty and fleshy and filled with lust and desire. And if we could just get rid of the desires of the body, um, then we could have a pure mind. And so therefore people are literally with their whole families kind of elevate to Alexandria, this kind of mystical place that no one's allowed to know precisely what it is. They're just killing people um, and then kind of elevating their thoughts so they can live this wonderful life where they can travel anywhere and do whatever they want without the, the hindrance of a body. And, and there's these people obviously who are resisting this and living in a kind of commune, like an abbey of misrule and, and trying to kind of stay enfleshed. And that's it's fascinating novel to try and illustrate the, the problem of when you don't care about your body and the fact that God made us with bodies for a reason, for, with limitation, 
and and also in the sense again the word becoming flesh it's and, and dwelt among us and actually sanctifying yes. uh, that well we're already sanctified because we're made in God's image and then we we're the ones who sully that with our sin and, and corruption but it doesn't mean therefore that the body itself is is it inherently um, corrupt it actually means that we're supposed to use our body to honor God and that wouldn't be possible if everything fleshy was was bad of course so yeah interesting but that's just something on the kind of mm. the need to recover embodiment which evangelicals we've not been very good at because we've actually sometimes subtly drifted into Gnostic heresy not really but probably subtly in, in some we we've gone we've gone a little bit of the way there mm. like really treating the spirit stuff as the only proper good godly stuff except yeah. sexual immorality we tend to go oh, we shouldn't do this stuff, we shouldn't do bad stuff, but generally we shouldn't care about good stuff relating to the body. We should just care about our no. spiritual mind or something. Right. And actually, if you want to, it's interesting, to, it's fascinating to explore when you look for those threads of gnosticism, because I would say when it comes to, to sexuality, it's the more liberal end of things, yeah. I think, that have gone the Gnostic route. You know, and, you know, I made a made a joke about the, you know, the Methodist Church, Church of scotland because those have gone you know just fo- fo- you know followed the culture and gone full woke quite fr- quite frankly mm. um but then you almost end up with this bizarre thing of saying well, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body because it, it, you know that's irrelevant mm. you know what mm. what matters is spiritual stuff over here mm. the whole transgender movement yeah. is 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 shot through with gnosticism um the idea that you know if your mind is one way and your body is the other way so if you have gender dysphoria if you have you know if you think of yourself as being female but you have a male body well what you have to do is the mind is obviously right you've got to you've got to man- manipulate the body into conformity with the mind whereas the old idea would have been no okay we need to use therapy and counseling and pastoral help to bring those two together to bring the mind into conformity with the body not the other way uh, around and then the other place i think for christians it really turns up aaron because i know this this is my part of my own faith journey you know, as a young christian my big struggle was i love jesus but i hated the idea of heaven because i had i had bought into this idea that heaven was this sort of disembodied physical existence either floating around on a cloud mm-hmm. somehow or some eternal church service where you sort of you know sort of drifted wraith like through the pews and it was only in my late uh, mid to late twenties, you know, really properly reading what the New Testament said about new heavens and new earth, the phys- that physical quality to the age to come. And uh, and then you know a bit later, Tom Wright's book, Surprised by by Hope, actually was a book that really helped me uh, with that, you know, that wonderfully earthy vision of what the age to come is like in the in the New Testament. Um, and I love it because you, you, you read, yeah, C.S. Lewis, C.S. yeah, C.S. and then you read yeah, the resurrection the stories and go. Yeah. You know, it's massively important that Jesus didn't come back as a ghost. He wasn't some yeah. wraith. Yeah. Um, he 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 touched people. He had a physical quality to him. And, and, and of the course, great thing about that, on, on the on the great divorce issue on yes. that, it, there's a the famous bit which people often refer to, which is helpful when they go there and, and they're they're actually the people, the physical people are actually not physical enough for how how concrete, as it were, how yes um, substantial. Um, heaven is uh, in the sense of like, the person tries to lift up a leaf and it's too heavy for them and then the glass is kind of cuts the grass kind of almost cuts their feet kind of thing so they feel like they are the ones that are substanceless or less substantial yeah. than heaven exactly and then lewis applied that idea to the idea of you know when when jesus turns up you know in the locked room where the disciples are there you know i love the idea and it's only an idea but it's a nice sort of theological speculation that the reason he was able to pass through the door was it wasn't that he was a ghost it was the door the door was ghost like in comparison because mm. jesus had that was a, was was much more was much realer um and i think the idea of reality there and just mm. so anyway the point being is i think 
I think the Gnostic tendency is uh, is everywhere. And yeah. um, and I think with with AI, what's interesting is there was a very old illustration um, put forward by I, th- I think he was from he was at Oxford at this point. There was a philosopher called John Searle who put forward a very famous illustration called the Chinese Room. Uh, mystery, you, a, a puzzle. Have you come across this one? No, no. So this is, I think, the 1970s, but it's still valid today, and it's to show why, you know, what we computers don't think. They they give a very good impression mm-hmm. of thinking. And so John yeah. said, imagine you've got a you've got a small locked cubicle with no windows, just a door and a letterbox in it, and inside this cubicle is a gentleman um, who doesn't speak Chinese, but he has a book um, that tells him if he gets asked a oh, question. Yes. Yes. written in Chinese. These are the letters to write back in response. And outside the room is a Chinese speaker, a Mandarin speaker, who writes down simple questions in Mandarin on a slip of paper, posts them through the letterbox, and a minute or so later, an answer comes back the other way. Now, outside of the room, the Mandarin speaker thinks he's conversing with a, with a, with a Chinese, with a Mandarin speaker, because he's asking questions, he's getting an answer. But inside the room, what's happening is the guy in the room doesn't speak a word of Mandarin, is say, taking the symbols he's been given through the letterbox, looking up what he should write in return, writing a posting back. And John said that is what artificial intelligence does. Now, he made that illustration in the 70s when things were simpler. It's the same today with ChatGPT. It's just a, just a scaled-up version of the Chinese room uh, enigma. And I think that, yeah. and again, we let ourselves get get deceived but we do it because we haven't thought through what it means to be humans yeah. and to be holy to be holy embodied yeah. and i think there's this massive task in the culture right now for christians to take a stand for physicality we need to do it on the trans piece yeah. we need to do it on the um on the ai piece and we need to put our own house in in order by the way we, we talked about this elsewhere on the on the show i think one of the things that accelerated certain gnostic tendencies in the church was of course lockdown because when we were all doing, you yeah. know, getting very excited about e-church, yeah. um, you know, the, char- the, the more charismatic wing of the church got excited because we don't need the person next to us. We can all close our eyes and have lovely worship songs and have a great warm fuzzy with Jesus. And so you don't need the world around yeah. you. So as long as the worship yeah. band are doing decent stuff on the Zoom call, then it's great. I don't need to be with yeah. others. Meanwhile, the more reformed end of things, and I'm not, by the way, saying reformed and charismatic are, uh, are opposites, but, you know, just illustrative for the argument the more reformed end of things of course in our churches we were to go well of course we don't need to be together that all happens in church is we have to download the sermon we need to get the sermon from the <laughs> pastor's mind into your mind yeah. and we can do that using technology we don't need a physical yeah. space and, yeah. and i think zoom exacerbated that tendency yeah in the church and ironically almost every wing of the church needs i think to stop and think harder about what it means to be physical and embodied because the new Testament cares about the world. As you say, I I love that point you made a few minutes ago that God did not send an idea. He Mm. sent Jesus in person, in flesh. Mm. And that really, really, really matters. Yeah, no, that's, I think you're so right that, that there's been a pressure. I always am, usually, yeah, thank you. <laughs> you're, you're very insightful. The GPT told me you're very insightful. Actually, it's a very insightful comment. That was you. It, it, didn't, it didn't give me an adjective at all. I, I, I'm going I to go, get an alternative. Can you give me an alternative introduction to Pot of the Gaps? And, uh, and I'll be the host and see what, uh, see what comes up. Um, yeah, I think um, you're right. The prepping that happened during lockdown is you know, unhelpful for, for, for the, for helping us deal with the AI uh, revolution, because we're basically, um, you know, we've, we've been too happy go lucky about this. Um, you know, as Andy here, by the way, is clicking, he's doing flubbing, live flubbing. I'm doing live flubbing. I'm just doing what you're doing. 
I'm turning the intro round to see what what uh, what oh, yeah, Edwin, what it gives me. Yeah. We can find out in a second. Do I oh, get? It, do I get a? Do you get a better intro? Oh, does it take a few minutes to do it? Oh, just use insightful for me, mate. I'm also uh, insightful. So, so it's it generic. It doesn't really think we're insightful. It just That's, throws that in. I feel hurt, hurt by the GPTs. You know, I, there I was thinking I was insightful, but clearly not. It was doing that. In, it's in, telling in, everyone they're insightful. You're, yeah, you're being, you're right. being, you're being, uh, you're being two timed by a by. <laughs> Does ChatGPT work differently in different cultures? Like, so is that is that British version of it's very insightful, but is there like a sort of you know, is there an American version or an Australian version which is you know a bit a bit salty? That's a very good question. Like. I should I should try that, shouldn't I? To go uh... <laughs> from an Amer- this American podcast, could we say? <laughs> to, yeah, you carry on while I mess around with ChatGPT. Yeah, I'll, car- I'll carry on pretending I'm talking to Andy Bannister on a podcast. On a podcast, and, exactly. Uh, will be looking. That's right. No, um, I I think uh, just to. Yeah, I think to change tack, well, not really change tack, but on the, on the, the issue we were talking about earlier in terms of, yes, there's benefits um, to this kind of stuff. So obviously people listening to this go, yeah, there's dangers for the church, um, not realizing presence matters, physicality matters, um, but look at all the things that we need to basically get on with. And I read this article by a guy called Mark Andreessen um, called Why AI Will Save the World. So you kind of know where the... Um, perspectives coming from I mean trying to dampen down all the panic going on all this stuff that you're worried about it's going to take our jobs it's going to um you know disembody us etc killer robots who want to replace us it kind of that would be like the caricature that he literally refers to oh yeah it's, it's not like that's going to be the, the happening and, and you kind of think well how do you know by the way frankly in 100 years how do you know how far it's going to get skynet in terminator didn't realize how how big they were going to become um and I, and, and here's what he actually says on it. He says, what AI could be in shorthand. He says, look, don't worry about all the stuff that's bad. What AI could be is just a way to make everything we care about better. So that's why we should not worry. AI is just going to make everything we care about better, which I think, though, that, that worried me more. because I kind of think, okay, well, we care about people. Are we, is AI going to make us better people? Is it going to save us and sanctify us? Is it playing the role of the Holy Spirit? What do you mean that the things we care about better? And then you get an even more terrifying thing further down in the article where he says, kind of, here's the great stuff that it could do, almost like trying to persuade you. And I'm like, I am less persuaded by everything you think is positive. So listen to this example of what it means in practice. Think about the future. Every child will have an AI tutor that is infinitely patient, infinitely compassionate, infinitely knowledgeable, infinitely helpful. The AI tutor will be by each child's side every step of their development, helping them maximize their potential with the machine version of infinite love. The machine Ah, version of infinite love. I can't think of anything more terrifying. Why would you let your child be brought? Why would you even need parents then? Couldn't you have, isn't, aren't we all terribly imperfect parents? AI perfect parenting, just hand over your babies at birth to AI and, and let them raise the perfect child. I mean, what on earth are they, how does he think that's a positive? That's just insane. Well, I see what interests me with that. A couple of things interest me with that straight away. One is we're back to the embodied thing. Mm. So the word compassionate actually intrigues me more than loving word, because as you know, being mm. a, being a brilliant theologian, um, you know, compassion, um, there's an embodied quality. Compassion is two little Latin words jammed together. Com meaning with, passion meaning to mm-hmm. suffer. And really, you know, lots of folks have commented that the, the, the true meaning of compassion is just helping somebody at, 
personal cost to yourself when you actually enter into the, the suffering. So if yeah. you decide that you look at what's going on in Ukraine and it's so bad you need to do something that you you know you quit your job, you get on a plane and you go and you move to Ukraine and you help you know deal with kids whose parents have been you know killed in the war, whatever. But that, that's cost you standard of living, risk, job yeah. security. That's compassion. Because it's 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 pricey. A machine simply going, oh, there, there, there. You know, this is the fifth time you've done two plus two wrongly. Don't don't worry, have another go. <laughs> yeah. That's sympathy, and that's you might mm. say it's kindness. It's not compassion. Mm. And then love, I think, love has a costly quality. True love is costly. And by the way, because mm. I'm an evangelist, I can't help myself. That's what I love about the, the love of God demonstrated in the New Testament. Go read Romans five, verse eight. Yeah. The costly love that yeah. is shown in the in in the mm. gospel, but. The other thing, Aaron, interested me there. I mentioned Sherry Turkle a few minutes ago, who is a writer I really, really like. So, so sociologist, technologist, MIT. Um, we'll put a link to you know one of her books or TED talks in the in the show notes. Interesting. She's got a faith background, sort of. She's a, got a Jewish mm-hmm. background. I don't know what she does or doesn't believe now. But the book that made her name was a book called Alone Together. Oh, yeah, Why yeah. we expect more from technology and less from each other. And her big point in that book is. What has gone wrong in human relationships that we are looking to technology to solve them? And one of the most tragic stories in that book, she tells, is that it tells some stories. She looks at social robotics, and particularly in Japan, where they've got a fertility crisis. We've got one developing in the West, incidentally, but there's one in Japan where they're not producing enough young people. And so you've got all these old people in seniors' homes with not enough people to look after them and care for them. And so the Japanese, being you know very technologically minded, have been inventing these little sort of robots. She gives the example of a cuddly sort of fluffy seal right. thing yeah. um, that old people can hold, and it will it will talk to them and, and say nice things yeah. to them. Yeah. And you know, on the one hand, you go, oh, it's great that that old person doesn't feel as lonely because they've got this robotic talking bit of fluff on their lap. But I mm. think Sherry would say, is this a really good thing? This is really a good thing that we're solving the problem of loneliness and human contact by creating yeah. back to the Chinese room. We're creating yeah. some ultra of it. And my yeah. challenge to Mark Anderson would be to go that AI tutor. If we got to that point, there's no love shown. It's pretending. Yeah. So you've got yeah. that child growing up, imagining that it's little AI friend yeah. loves it. AI friend doesn't, doesn't care for it at all in this life. That's not like, yeah, go on. No, you have the same thing in in uh, Blade Runner, the, the newer Blade Runner. Forget what the twenty forty or whatever it was. I don't know, twenty eighty. I don't know. Um, the, the second Blade Runner movie, which has kind of um, replacement, I guess, wives slash partners slash concubines, like electronically generated. Like this is a perfect person for. So these guys would have these kind of electronically generated um, women who are who kind of fulfil their emotional needs. Um, I presume some kind of it's because I forget exactly how that worked. Um, but um, yeah, it was, it's again like the replacement of something, which is a kind of copy, which is so, it's so troubling. It's almost a little bit like the same role pornography will play, which no one ever, I don't think would, would go. I'm perfectly satisfied with pornography. Um, it's kind of a cheap imitation of something that's, that's supposed to kind of almost trick your brain and your desires into into what the real thing is. And I think that's what we're, we're dealing with here with that we're doing a kind of shortcut version, efficient version to try and do something better, I don't know, cheaper, but also genuinely they are trying to make it better because they're saying human error is the problem. Um, and so let's eliminate human error. But how can you do that? What an arrogant thing to do to say, we're um, not going to input human error into our system, our machine learning. We can create a godlike machine. I, and I came across this um, book reference called 
from ages ago, you, you mentioned the book earlier, from, and, and an example from earlier, the people who've actually seen some of these issues in advance. There's a guy who wrote, you might know this in your in your AI days, I don't know, David Noble's The Religion of Technology. Mm. It's from 1997, The Divinity of Man and the Spirit of Invention. And it's basically about the, the notion that we, the humans are almost trying to play God. I mean, that's kind of not an unusual uh, you know, an original thing, but it's kind of like this sense of recovering the lost Eden. So if in the Garden of Eden, God said, here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't, don't eat from it. And Satan comes and tempts humanity to say, actually, God doesn't want you to be as, to know as much as he is. He doesn't want you to be as he is. Um, now the modern world, as it becomes more secular and autonomous, which is what the Enlightenment effectively did to try to say, we've enlightened ourselves. It's literally like, We've eaten again from the tree. We can do all this stuff. We can develop stuff. We can develop new technology, scientific discovery. We don't need all the religious mumbo jumbo and the fairy tales of the medieval era. Um, so let's kind of onto the future, onto the great future, and we can create the immortal mind. And so it's like we're trying to um, recreate these this sense of humanity living forever. So it's funny you mentioned Japan and fertility crises in the West, which is more secular and is more technologically driven. Um, we are having fewer children, but we, ha- we have a greater sense of wanting, um, so there's a, a beeping there, which is the bread maker going off, or or some kind of machine not happy with what some, I'm Some saying. kind of machine. And, and you, it's going yeah. to shut me down. But I was just going to say that the, um, the immortal mind element is like almost like our progeny. We're not having mm. children, so let's, um, let's, cre- let's live forever in some other sense, like let's download our thoughts or download our brilliance. So if humanity does become extinct, we're not going to die. We'll live forever. It's the immortal mind. And therefore, again, it goes back to the body doesn't matter. And even even humanity yes. doesn't really matter because we can just get our thoughts, which we think are brilliant anyway, and we don't need God in any way to kind of govern that or limit that. Um, and we'll see what's the worst that could happen. Well, there's so many things I I would say there. I mean, it's interesting that, uh, that back to that Mark Anderson quote reminds me of you know uh, several folks have, have commented haven't they that um it's interesting we live in this very we live in this very secular world but has been pointed out by many writers through uh through the ages not least gk chesterton who famously said you know when you when men stop believing in god they don't believe in nothing they believe in anything or i think yeah. he also said as, as, as god is chased is pushed out the front door the gods come marching in the back yes. door yes. um and so what we've done in a increasingly secular West, I mean, further in the West, because Japan too, but, but you know, in very highly industrialized societies, we've, we've actually tried to reconstruct the whole of theology, haven't we? So we've got neo-Darwinism, that's our creation myth. So we've got an origins uh, kind of story. Then we've got, uh, you know, with, with, with things like transgender and other things, we've got a salvation story. You know, find your true identity, the true you, be your best self, mm. And whatever, and then you can mangle reality to to to, to, to fit that. So there's a sort of salvation track, mm-hmm. um, and then now there's an eschatology, which is that you know what's the dream? Well, it's that one day we could you could upload yourself into the cloud and and live forever. One day we can you know humanity as a physical entity might might go by the by, but we will live forever in the technologies that we create. And it reminds me of um. We were talking before the show began. You know, I mentioned Tolkien as we were chatting because mm-hmm. I rarely day goes by without me mentioning Tolkien because um, I'm reading through Lord of the Rings with my son right now. And then in a, one of my favorite Tolkien quotes in a letter he wrote to a friend. So this is from the letters of J.R.R. Uh, Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien once said, we all long for Eden and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human is still soaked with a sense of exile. 
Mm-hmm. And that sense that even our secular friends have that sense we've lost something. Something's not right. Um, you know, it's always interesting to do an act to run an Act 17 on things in culture, you know, where Paul looks at Athens, looks at all the crazy religiosity and doesn't totally berate them. He starts from, the, he makes a couple of positive comments, you know, in the sense that the spirituality is good. They're looking for something. They're just looking in the wrong place. And with Mark's piece that you mentioned there, of going that sense that something is broken, that things could be better mm. is absolutely right. That's the universal human experience. The mistake we then make is thinking, well, it's broken flawed humanity. You can somehow solve that rather than going, okay, what if the way back to Eden is not actually to try and you know construct little chatbots, but is actually to yeah. go, okay, what went wrong in the first place? And it's often so interesting that the things that we think we want as human beings solve the problem just make the problem worse. I mean, listeners to Pod of the Gaps will know because I've quoted it before. One of my you know favorite little binge watches is the is the Netflix uh, dystopian uh, sci-fi series Black Mirror that's just uh, premiered its sixth season this week. I have yet to dive into it, um, but there's an episode a few years ago, a very famous uh, episode of Black uh, Black Mirror. Um, which explored some of that called Be Right Back, which is the story of a woman whose husband dies quite young. And she comes across this service where basically they can give you a simulcra of your dead loved one with a little AI chat boss in, built into it. So it's almost like you've got your loved one back mm. from the dead. Mm. But the whole episode plays the fact there's something not quite right. And although it doesn't use the language of soul and spirit, what's clearly the case, it's got the outward it's got the outward form. So there is a sudden like Gnostic danger here if you push the mm. metaphor too far. But it's again, it's it's pretending to be. So she, what she thinks she wants is something yeah. that looks like and sounds like her husband, but it's not quite her husband. Mm. And I think with ChatGPT, with social robotics, again, we're playing with the idea that, well, we want connection. So maybe if yeah. we build things that give us the impression of connection, it will serve that it will solve that ache in our hearts. Yeah. Whereas again, the evangelist in me wants to ask people, but what? Why is it we long for connection? What's the connection yeah. that's ultimately broken that's yeah. causing all of this angst and despair? Yeah. What if it's something far deeper than just a few lines of programming code are going to solve? Absolutely, I, I think that goes back to the <clears throat> need for, for theology to actually have a, a role in this as, as well. Like it's a, 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 well, even just humanities, a humanities thinking uh, that needs to be embedded here the problem is <clears throat> with those who are pioneering all this technology they're not thinking like what you've just talked about in terms of those deeper existential issues which can't be solved from within they have to be solved from without and of course if you're a secular worldview thing well no they don't we can the whole point of secularity is to say that we have we have eaten from the fruit and we can we can be as god we can think as god and all of the other stuff that was almost like that was limiting us the tree limits us and, and Satan tempts us into saying, actually, no, you can achieve everything you want to achieve. And you don't need to uh, recognize God and you don't need some transcendent salvation. This can all be done um, for you. Um, and I think it kind of, it, it just goes into that, that problem. So we, we have, um, I had a student who did a whole, all of his MA, all of his modules and all of his dissertation. He came to, to me to say, I want to do an MA entirely in the fourth industrial revolution in, in AI uh, learning and the issues because I'm worried. He's an Ang- Anglican guy, um, kind of middle aged going. I'm, I don't know what. I don't see anyone at this time ch- challenging this, and because the problem is all the money, Silicon Valley companies, etc. Um, and Mark Andreas, who I quoted earlier, has a 35 billion dollar Silicon Valley company. So you might say his positivity and optimism about AI is not unconnected to the fact that he's got skin in that game. Um, so there's people who have all the money and they're doing all this stuff. We're not even involved. Like, they don't have like vicars involved in um, the ethics of some of these things, uh, at, at least not the level that they need to. I'm sure they may have some 
aesthetic of like, oh yes, we've, we've thought about the ethical implications, but have you? Have you thought about the transcendent implications if you don't actually believe there is transcendence? How come there aren't theologians at that table saying, you, can you do this? Should you do this? Are there ethicists there saying, um, uh, making moral judgments? You know, can AI make a moral, a fully moral judgment into a kind of complex area that requires human decision? So, uh, you know, as Christians, again, as part of the revelation of God, yeah. God's word to us is wisdom. And wisdom doesn't mean I just know all the information there is to know so that you come to me yes. and a wise person goes, well, I know everything. So I will tell you what the best answer is. No, wisdom is actually making a decision between often two very complex, difficult, or maybe more than two uh, options. And you go, I'm going to, this. I have an intuition or you've, you've got experience, you know who this person is, you know something about it. And wisdom is is, is making a, a certain choice. And we have certain um, mm. parameters and we have certain uh, literally wisdom literature to help us think yes. through that. But it doesn't mean that you just read the wisdom literature in the Bible and go, now I've imbibed that. I won't have any problem with making decisions. It, that's just not how it works. God makes yeah. us dependent upon him. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Yeah. And we're well, also, saying, our thoughts are yeah. your thoughts, God, actually. There's also the other thing as well. I mean, it's interesting you brought the morality piece up, which is a big part of the AI conversation, I think, is, as well, is that there's also something about biblical wisdom and, and lived ethics that has that embodied quality to mm. it in that you have to live with the consequences of your decision. One of the one of the examples I've often used of, of late is there's been lots of talk about, you know, self-driving cars. This is one of the areas mm. of, of artificial intelligence that there's been lots of excitement about. It's died down a bit because it turns out yeah. the problems are bigger than people realize. Mm. But one of the things I've often found fascinating is going, okay, there's a moral question. If a self-driving car, you know, drives through a, uh, you know, a, a, a crowd of pedestrians and kills four or five people, or perhaps back up a minute, so the car's yeah. driving along the road and, you know, a, a, one of those classic ethical dilemmas and a young mum with a pushchair mm. is crossing the, the road mm. and the car can't stop and it can swerve to avoid it. But if it does it, it's going to take out two elderly people in their 80s. Mm. What should you do? It's a classical mm. ethical kind of mm. discussion. Now, here's mm. the thing. If you're a human driver in that scenario and you decide that the right, the only thing to do, the best, the least bad of the two options is to mm. drive into the elderly couple because at least they've lived long lives and you're not going to wipe mm. out a, a family of five who are at the start of things. If you make that decision, um, firstly, you're going to live with the pain of that. Secondly, mm. you can go to the funeral. You can mm. send flowers. You can you can offer something in terms of repentance for you. You have taken an option that is not a good, it's not the best one. It's simply the least bad one, and you mm. can be involved in the mess that you've created. If a computer algorithm, you know, along comes the Tesla, other self-driving cars mm. are available, mm. um, and makes that same decision algorithmically, what's going to happen? Is a software program going to turn up at the funeral? Can a few mm. can a few lines of computer code, you know, send flowers mm. to the funeral, do something to show that you realize you've made this horrific decision that there was no perfect outcome and so on? Absolutely none. It's just purely yeah. clean and clinical. Ethics, yeah. I think you have to live with the consequences of your decision yeah. when there are messy ethics. And you can't do that without being embodied. Mm. But the other big ethical issue, I think, around AI that lots of people are talking about and where there is more nervousness is how do you Im- how do you imbue values mm. into artificial, artificial intelligence systems? Exactly. There's a philosopher at Oxford called Nick Bostrom who's done a lot of work on this and I think is perhaps one of the more concerned voices out there. His book, Superintelligence, I read a few years ago and was like kind of, I mean, I'm fairly much a kind of glasses half full kind of person, but even I came away feeling a little bit depressed because he makes the observation there of going how even if you build a very simple AI system and give it a very simple task, how do you put the ethical constraints on it? He gives the example of let's suppose we create a general purpose artificial intelligence entity is actually intelligent. We we create this thing, we hit the, you know, the jackpot, 
And we decide we'll give it a very simple task of making paper clips. Because what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. We're not asking it yeah. to, to plan wars and do big things. Yeah. Like, we'll just task it with making paper clips. But unless yeah. we can somehow tell that AI unit that human life is more important than paper clips, it turns the whole planet into a paper clip factory. It decides that human yeah. beings can be raw materials. We're full of carbon and metals and things. Yeah. And suddenly, yeah. within a generation, no life on Earth, just a mass of paper clips. And Nick said, no matter what you set your intelligent agent to do, you've got to figure out how to load values in. And he said, mm-hmm. then whose values? And how do you exactly. constrain those values? And how do you show yeah. those values hold? And he doesn't make this point, but I remember when I read that book, the analogy that sprang to my mind is that human beings always have this tendency throughout history to invent things, and we don't always stop and look at the, the some of the big questions in yeah. those technologies. <clears throat> and the book, to me, that I think illustrates this beautifully, we've recommended lots of reading on this episode. Well, I'm going to go years back. I'm going to take you back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, because if you know your literary history, you'll know, of course, that Frankenstein wasn't the monster. Frankenstein was the scientist, creates this monster, this beast, and the beast causes all kinds of chaos. But when asked to justify what it's done, it basically says, well, I looked around at what humans do. And I looked at the murders and the wars and the violence. And I assumed that was what I was supposed to emulate. And the whole play in that book is who's the monster? Is it the creature or is it humanity mm-hmm. in whom the creature has decided its job is to be mm-hmm. as authentically human as it can be? And if there are problems with AI, is it not just the case that the tools that we invent just end up reflecting the fact that we are mm-hmm. flawed and broken, the damage that sin has wrought in creation? Mm-hmm. And ironically, it turns out, or maybe not ironically, it shouldn't mm-hmm. be a surprise to those who read scripture deeply, mm-hmm. that the stuff that we create ends up reflecting the best, yes, but also the worst of humanity and we've seen it with every scientific technology mm. that's mm. been invented you know we split the atom produces energy it creates nuclear bombs uh, you know we discover biochemistry and we use it to heal we use it to create chemical weapons and we create technologies like ai and i've no doubt they can do great things i'm not mm. people listening to this are probably going man you guys are luddites i love technology i get excited mm. about it i think there are mm. great things that ai can do i don't have to write any more intros to pot of the gaps it's fantastic um <laughs> But yeah, if we but, didn't yeah. realize that it's going to reflect the worst aspect of us as human beings mm-hmm. um, on a massive scale because of the power behind it, then we are naive. Absolutely. No, because that's right. And I think, you know, leading towards our conclusion, Eric, we'll, let's let, we'll let ChatGPT write our conclusion as well. But I, I, I was thinking, um, as you were saying that, the, it reminded me of that um, one of the things that's come out recently around scripture in terms of values, the danger of the values that are put in. And as you say, the worst of humanity can come in. And what is the current worst of humanity? We basically assume in that kind of C.S. Lewis chronological snobbery thing, we are at the, we are the best version of humanity. So what we think and our values right now are the best. So let's put those into the computer and let it go off on one. And there's that um, uh, senior advisor to the World Economic, World Economic Forum, um, Yuval Noah Harari. Oh, yes. He said who argued that using AI, um, we, we should replace scripture in all religions and create a new AI version of scripture to create unified, uh, it will create unified religions that are actually correct, was the phrase, religions that are actually correct. And says the great thing about this is it's the first technology ever that can create new ideas. Throughout history, religions dreamt about having a book written by a superhuman intelligence, by a non-human entity. And I just think 
that's a, that's a, such a terrifying prospect. Do they even think that that's possible? That, that oh, there's all these different religions. There's a plural, pluralism issue of oh yeah, they're all getting at something. They're not quite all there. They all disagree on different stuff. So let's just make a one world religion, one world scripture that unifies everything and makes an actually correct religion. And then, but even the the secularity involved in that is terrifying because you go yeah, all these different people have dreamt about having a book written by superhuman intelligence. So let's just make one with our best intelligence. And you think, how how would you ever have gotten the revelation that we have um, in uh, from God if it was purely from a human level? So of course, Christians believe that scripture is, is humans, absolutely being humans, but actually their thoughts and their uh, their intelligence and their speech and their experiences annexed by God in a way in that in, in inspiring them as they're doing these uh, the things they're doing the things that they're saying so there's a kind of sense of a um, wonderful revelation that involves humanity it's not like we believe the Quran mm. written in heaven and facts down to Muhammad but it's actually we believe that it got involved in our fleshliness in our in our humanity and and brings something to us which is still of his wisdom of, of heaven not of earth and you would never come up with, for example, you talk about human problems. How do we how do we conquer human sin and all the terrible things that Frankenstein has seen? Well, Jesus is the answer, and and the wisdom of the cross is not something humanity would have come up with in in it, in its great in its wildest dreams. So we wouldn't have sat down and go, let's have a save, let's have the Son of God enter humanity as flesh, live a perfect life. Die, die and die, willingly die on the cross, and then and then we'll have him raised from the dead and walk through a wall and make some fish and ascend to heaven and then send the Holy Spirit. We would not have come up with that. It's not a religion that kind of works well in terms of a, a, a imagined schema. And as Paul says in one Corinthians one to two, the, the wisdom of God is kind of foolishness to man. So we're not going to come up with that. And I think that's why we need transcendent revelation, why we need God to mm. be God and us to be human, for Him to actually intersect and help us with our help us to use the best of the intelligence he's given us, but also help us to save us from ourselves in the way we would use our intelligence to mm. um, do all sorts of terrible things as we've seen in the history of humanity. Yeah. Well, two, two final thoughts as well from, from, from me on that, that really struck me as you, as you, as you chatted there, Aaron, the first thing is um, the, the revelation piece is interesting because I mean, Harari is a fascinating, you know, barrel of contradictions on one level, but here's one thing I find fascinating. Chat GPT, for someone like Harari, you know, if he gets excited about those kind of technologies, well, they haven't grown from nothing. They've received, they've needed vast amounts of input from human beings. So in one sense, ChatGPT is a great big parable that we need revelation because what we've done, we've revealed the content to that AI system and then let's start from there. That's not totally dissimilar. The the, the analogy breaks down, but I like analogies nevertheless of going, you know, Tolkien, who I mentioned earlier, you know, had this lovely idea where he talked about as human beings, God has given us the task of sub-creation. He's created the universe. He's put in a lot of the parameters and the starting points. And he's gone, great, in my image, human beings are fantastic. Go get at it. Go invent. Go create. Mm-hmm. And we're sub-creators. Well, mm-hmm. AI is exactly the same position because ChatGPT has done absolutely nothing. If you t- if you go to ChatGPT, we'll put a link in the show notes because go play with it. It's good fun. If you mm-hmm. say, you know, Write me a, a, a sonnet about uh, about motor cars in the style of Shakespeare. It'll do a brilliant job. You'll have a good laugh with it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you say, write me a piece of poetry in an entirely new genre that no one's ever heard of, I want it, I want something utterly original. It will have not the first clue where mm-hmm. to begin because it has to work with what it's been 
given similar mm. to, to we to us we've been given things in creation mm. and there are some limits and then the last thing that occurred to me it got a comic point to end on is i mentioned um i mentioned um frankenstein the other book that i think has something to offer here one of my favorite books if i had to read if i was marooned on a desert island and i had the bible uh and so on and i had to take one other book i mean i'd struggle to know what book to take but one book i might pick for the light relief is i've long been a fan of douglas adams hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy a lot of popular wisdom in that comic sci-fi novel but there's a wonderful scene in that book where there's this planet this civilization where they decide they want to answer the ultimate question the question of life the universe and everything and they build the most complex computer that has ever been built it's called deep thought and they set the program running to answer the question, the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And it runs for 200 years. And finally, the great moment comes when Deep Thought is ready to reveal its answer. And uh, after much sort of pondering, the computer says, the answer, the answer to the great question of life, the universe, and everything, is 42. <laughs> and the two philosophers who have had this discussion with the computer are like, what? What earth? I'm 42. <laughs> And then Deep Thought says, perhaps the problem is that you guys never actually knew what the question was. Mm. And in other words, unless you've actually figured out the right question to ask, um, then you're stymied. And I think, you know, expecting computers to help us with infinite love or compassion or religion or these things, it's totally the wrong question. And I think right now we're engaged in a Deep Thought exercise Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the tasks of Christians is to go. These things are great. Let's not be. Let's not be totally negative. I know Aaron and I in this show have, you know, asked some critical questions. Technology has done some great things, and there's lots of great books I think, and great podcasts and things have explored the opportunities technology offers for the church and in the things we can do. But let's also ask the right questions and ask you right questions. We're on good territory, aren't we? Because Jesus asked questions. Three hundred seven questions. Jesus asked in the Gospels. Mm. And I think part of our task as we engage culture and engage our friends is to help people ask the right questions, Mm. not least, what is it we really want? What is life really about? Is it reducible to an algorithm? Or is being human far more than that? And are the problems far more than that? But also the opportunities, if the Gospel is true, far more than that. Mm. Amen. That sounds good. Well, that's a a good and a good place to end it. I mean, you know, in lieu of a um, some kind of chat GBT. So the pressure is on you. I did a robotic intro. You can do it. An incoherent human imperfect one. That's right. Yeah. No, well, like we do every time. Yeah, exactly. We master that, don't we? I think chat GBT should have been clever enough to listen to all the podcast gaps episodes and see how we do our outros and go, right, this is how they tend, they tend to do it. They tend to mess up at various points. No, but I do hope you found that helpful. And, um, you know, as we've been kind of away for a while um, with various busyness, so we'll try and get onto a regular pattern again soon. So uh, do keep with us and do keep supporting us and liking, subscribing and sharing part of the gaps. And, and we'd love to keep hearing from you as well. So keep speaking to us. And we promise we won't give you an automated response. We'll try not to. But don't do the ones I mentioned earlier, you know, where, where you just pretend you've listened to the episode, but you haven't really listened to the episode. Um, that would be helpful, but uh, helpful to have some kind of correspondence with you guys um, going forward. Um, and I've been Aaron Edwards. This has been, I think, Andy Bannister, or it, it has could have been, been yes. an AI hologram. I don't know. Um, but he's done a pretty good job of representing Andy Bannister if, if it was AI in some way. And uh, we've been part of the gaps. So farewell. Bye for now.